As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. A lady like across the way from me gives me all her cocktail napkins. And she's like, I do not know what you are reading that has you like in such buckets of tears, but you at least need to wipe your nose. <laughs> oh my gosh, this book is studying me. Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 135. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, guest and author Jen Hatmaker is known for speaking publicly about a lot of things, but reading isn't usually one of them, at least not the books she's really reading on her own time. And today, you're going to hear how different those titles are from what you probably expect her to enjoy reading. Today, Jen and I get to chat about the intricacies of her home library, the book that gave her nightmares, the finer points of humor writing, and why she loves it, and much more. Let's get to it. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Well, what we love to do here is ask our guests to tell us about their background as a reader. Were you one of those kids who like read a book under the table and got in trouble because you were supposed to be sitting in your chair at family dinner? Or what did that look like for you? Yeah, positively. I was a reader literally from my earliest memories, a super fast reader. I'm still like that. I remember absolutely plowing through my old Baptist church library. I mean, it's a whole, so I should write a whole essay about that, but their whole entire collection of Nancy Drew uh, <laughs> books just picked them off. It's funny to think of it now, but I was shy till about fifth grade. Just spent a lot of time in my room, inside reading books. When I would get in trouble, my mom would take my books. That was my punishment. <laughs> so yeah, there was never ever a moment in my life where books and reading was not an enormous part of my free time and my favorite chosen activity. Okay. You could write an essay about that small Baptist church library, or you have written an essay? No, I should. Like, because even as I just said that, I haven't even thought about that place. I have not even thought about that room until that very minute that it came out of my mouth and I was just remembering the Nancy Drews. I mean, it's like the size of a small bedroom, first of all. It's it's 
not a grand library and it's just so dusty and everything is so old. It is so outdated. I don't know if anybody used it except for me, frankly. I, I was the only <laughs> third grade girl down on the floor with all her Nancy Drews in there ever. And it's like always staffed and run by this one like super, super old lady. Anyway, I can even like smell it in my head. But, you know, that was back in the day when I don't even know if churches have these anymore. I don't know if churches have. Now churches are cool. You know, they're like all cool and they have coffee shops. Our church was like old and grungy and dingy and the libraries in the deepest, darkest corner of the basement. That is where I got my Nancy Drew fix. That's a, that's a fact. Oh, I like that about you. Do you have any on your shelves? Do you like maintain a nostalgic collection? Because some readers, they go to half price books and they see the shelf of like the yellow Nancy Drews and the lavender Hardy boys and they just go, oh. Is that you? What makes you wistful for your reading childhood? That does give my heart a little pitter-patter when you say that. And as somebody who has way too many books, legit problem, and it's taking over all the nooks and crannies of our house. My office is a disaster. Um, I'm actually surprised that I have not dialed in my obsession and gotten a first edition collection, but it's not too late. Now, when people say they have too many books, they mean it one of two ways. They have too many books or they're surrounded by books and it's a beautiful thing, even though you'd probably think they were insane. Where are you? It's definitely not my problem. (laughs) I'm not the one, for example, in this family saying, what the heck? Like, can I just have one surface in the house that does not have literally eight books stacked on it? I do not have a problem with my books. I'll admit probably having an irrational attachment to a lot of them too, and that I just feel like I want to keep them. And I'm real greedy and like I write my name in every single book I own. Like I don't want my friends stealing my books and I'm, I'm their personal library, which makes perfect sense. Nobody literally ever needs to go to a library or a bookstore. I have it. So do you just grab whatever pen is on the kitchen counter or is there like an official hat maker seal? I do have some real strong feelings about my pen. Like I, this is not just a loosey goosey grab a pen scenario. I am 100% obsessed with the blue Bic pins, the ones that are kind of clear, like so much so that I asked for those for Christmas. Are we talking about like the Bic sticks that cost a dollar a dozen? Are we up a couple no, levels? No, not the ones that are white. The ones that are more expensive than that. But They're like Bic Crystal. Bic Crystal. Okay. That's the one. And I love them and I want to have a hundred of them at all times. And I don't know like who is stealing them, but they're constantly disappearing from my life, even though I buy them in bulk. I never have enough. And so any if somebody really knows me, my good friends have given me packages of Bit Crystal. And it's like I've never felt so loved. Definitely blue ink all the way, Bit Crystal, 100% of the time. However, my assistant, Amanda, who's incredibly thoughtful, always just paying attention to the things that I do. She knows about my like um, panicky name writing in my books so that should somebody borrow them, they'll remember to bring it back to me. And she bought me an embosser with my name on it. And I can like literally emboss a book. It feels so special and fancy and important that I could do that, that I could emboss my own name in a book. And so I haven't made it a regular practice yet, but it's what I'm saying is it's, it's potential for me. So that could be like your rainy Saturday afternoon. I have better things to do, but right now I need to emboss every book in my personal library kind of thing. Exactly. Not, just, not that you would. I'm sure I'm just projecting. I just, I, I can almost in my mind, I see myself sitting on my office floor surrounded by the stack of books <laughs> like my embosser. 
like I'm just laying claim to all my treasures. How do these books come into your life at this rate? Also greedy. I'd like to hear greedy unpacked. Yeah. What does that mean to me? I think um, when I say the word greedy, I think I want all these for myself. I'm a rereader. I know not everybody is, and this is a very controversial topic among the reading crowd. This is um, a safe place. I, I sense that it is, and so I am positively a rereader. Um, and so I just want to have my books available to me at any moment that I want to reread any of them. Um, so my books come to me essentially one of two ways. I know I'm not supposed to say this, but again, safety. I get an enormous <laughs> amount of books sent to me. Somebody sends me a book every single day of my life. Most notably, they want me to read it and or endorse it and or promote it. We burn up the mailbox with books and they tend to be Christian in nature, tend to be in my industry more or less. But all my other books the ones that I love the most, I buy. And I'm not sorry about it. I'm just, I have so few vices and I'm not a spender. I'm really thrifty and I don't buy a lot of things ever in any category except for books. My kids also know this. They know that with me, they have an automatic, unchecked, unrestrained green light when it comes to books. Uh, and they know it and they abuse it. And I don't even care. I, I, I know they're doing it and I still don't care. Um, it has worked for exactly two out of my five kids. I have two voracious readers and the rest of them is just not in their lane. I want to be fair to two of my non-readers. They were both born in Ethiopia and they did not come to America and into our family until they were five and eight. They knew no English. So English was positively their second language. And so to be fair, language, reading, English, spelling, all that has been very hard for them because it was, you know, they had to pick it up later when, once, all their, once all their classmates and peers were like light years ahead of them. Um, and so because I think it was such a labor, such an educational labor to learn English, it just took the joy right out of it. It never occurred to them that they could be reading for fun. Um, they were just trying to get through the freaking day. Maybe for them, maybe they will come around and discover like, pick up a book one day and realize how like fluent and amazing they are in English and be like, oh my gosh, this could be fun. I didn't know that when I was too busy just trying to learn the letters. I want to come back to this rereading. What are some ones that have called you to come back to them? I don't like to reread everything. I typically like to reread satire. I like funny. So I have read my whole David Sedaris collection a dozen times each, easily. I read most of my Anne Lamott's over and over and over. I love a good memoir that makes me laugh. So if it's super emotional, I don't reach for those. I'll read it once, but when I reread, I want to be entertained. The other kinds of books that I sometimes reread are the ones that instruct me, like The Art of Memoir, like Mary Carr, mm -hmm. tend to put a little gas in the tank for what I do. I will have no problem reading a book for the 15th time. And I, I still enjoy it. I still get pleasure out of it. I still laugh at all the same parts that I even like almost know by heart. I am an unashamed rereader. All right. Can we talk about David Sedaris for a minute? Knowing we were talking, I was thinking about his new one, Calypso. And this is what I want to talk about. First of all, like his range is incredible. I will be cackling at the end of one chapter, turn the page and like major emotional punch in the get. Walk. I know it's weird. His, yeah. He's so skilled. It almost upsets me because his precision is so dialed in. 
his his way of being sort of observational and self-deprecating, almost embarrassingly honest, is just, it just lays me out. Nobody has the craft mastered like he does. He's incredible. I'm reading Calypso. I am cackling all the while thinking, this is so inappropriate. I can't believe I'm <laughs> laughing at this. Am I a terrible, horrible person? So- like. Appropriate. Like in Calypso, he's making jokes about like paintings of Jesus. And I am oh, like, yes, absolutely no shame. Like there is uh, at this point, I guess nothing he will not write about. And so nothing. it's so endearing because he does it with a clever hand. Sometimes when you're a humor writer and you delve into something that's either inappropriate, it's just too heavy handed. Writing humor is so hard. It's such a special skill. And so I, I think I find a lot of humor writers just overwork it. I mean, it's just, uh, just take it back three notches. This is always my crime. When I am writing bad humor, it's overworked. When I go back and read it later, it makes me cringe. But somehow David Sedaris always stopped short of overworking. It is just absolutely hysterical. I mean, there's some of his essays I cannot read in public. I, <laughs> I laugh so hard. Like, my old my books have tear stains on those pages, and I just it's uncontrollable. I think that would make him really happy. I think it probably would too. And he does. He says the things you're not supposed to say, but that people think, which I think is why it really works. Yeah, that's exactly it. He's okay. telling the truth. Okay, what do you mean by overworked? What does that look like? I know for me, when I have a story, I'm wanting to push on it a little too hard and not just let it be what it is, and not just let it sort of skip along in its natural rhythm. I, I almost don't know how to describe it except another difference when I read it. Like when I've, ri- when I've written a piece of satire that I just forced it into submission, it just has too many words. The humor is a little bit too barren. You know, it's just too stark, too naked bare. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have enough nuance to it, enough subtlety. And I can tell when I've written like that, that I'm not giving my reader enough credit. I'm either feeling like I have to make this a little bit more plain, ring out the punchline, where I actually find satire writing at its very best, it drops its humor in a really, really light hand and trust the reader to pick it up, trust the reader to be smart enough to see how funny that sentence was without being overwrought. On my best days, I write like that. And on bad days, it just feels like really bad stand-up. And I have to go back <laughs> and like, clean it out the next day, like take out half of this. Well, you get to edit, so that works. I need about 12 editors between me and the general public. So thank goodness for editors. All right. So amongst all those books, how do you decide what you want to read? Which really is a question about why you read. What are you looking for when you pick up a book? Again, I know I'm supposed to say that I <laughs> to read Christian books and I'm always wanting to read like books that exhort me or inspire me or all those, but that's not ever, almost ever what I reach for. Reading to me is pure pleasure. I love fiction. Fiction's my favorite. I love memoir. I really love food writing. All books set in a restaurant or built around a chef's experience. Um, But I also like to read really well-written cookbooks. And then, of course, I love satire. I have learned so much from good satire writers and humorists. Those were some of the writers really early on in my own writing career that gave me the most inspiration. They laid the most amount of pavement in front of me that I could envision myself stepping on. 
They put some language in front of me that I realized that's how I like to talk. That's how I like to communicate. I like to laugh and I like to make other people laugh. And so it wasn't so much the Christian writers that were my mentors as much as it was the humor writers, the beautiful way they can tell a story. Those are still mostly my heroes. Did you always recognize that? Or was there a point in time where you realized, uh, you know, I really don't like the books everybody expects me to be reading? I only think that as a grown up. I mean, when you're deeply, as you are, embedded in a reading community, all bets are off. You know, you get a lot of permission inside the community to read anything you love. That's that's sort of how this works. And and we love to talk about books and we love to trade around our reading lists. And I think I only really developed that mechanism, that apologetic mechanism for my book list once I became sort of a Christian writer, speaker, leader. Because then, you know, there's just a whole lot of shoulds that like float around in my life, in my world, in my culture, in my industry, what we should be reading, what we should be spending our time on, who we should be aligning with or paying attention to. But I just find that for somebody who makes a living out of communicating largely around spiritual ideas, around biblical ideas, around church ideas, that I don't also want that to be my fun reading. It's just too much. I don't want to come home from my work and do more work. Um, which is how that feels to me. It feels like research. It doesn't feel like pleasure. Consequently, when I am writing a book in a deep dive of my own content and it's in a book form, then at that point I am reading everything I get my hands on that sort of fills my mind in that spiritual space. But again, I consider that research. That doesn't necessarily feel like fun reading. So I probably should just stop apologizing for what I'm what I love and just read what I love. Are you ever glad that people can't always see what's on your nightstand? <laughs> yeah, I for sure have some books that I love that I would never say in public because they are so foul-mouthed. They're full of so much cursing or content that would not be approved. I learn a lot from humor writers. Um, That is just not a sanitized genre. If you're going to go outside of your sort of space and read some really good writing, you just kind of have to develop a capacity to not be constantly offended. So I totally have that. I am not easily offended. I have a very deep well to be able to appreciate somebody else's writing, even if I'm not going to write like that, or even if you know, it's not the words that I would pick or the, the content that I would choose to discuss. But um, I don't find that to be true of the Christian community in general. I, they're very, very pearl clutchy, a lot of side eyes. Positively, you will not know every book I've read. Um, even some <laughs> really beautiful, beautifully hilarious, wonderful writing so outside of like Christian subculture that it just would not be worth the like finger wagging to tell people that I read it. Okay. Do you have this experience? If I put a book on my blog or like share a photo on Instagram and say, this is trash, don't read it. (laughs) I will without question get half a dozen notes and emails that say, oh, I was at the bookstore and I saw that book and I remember you talked about it and I read it and I loved it. Thank you so much for the recommendation. (laughs) 
<laughs> the one that you hated. It doesn't matter what I say. I think the visual memory makes yeah. people, uh, I mean, that's what they remember. They remember where they saw it. And I kind of love that about the human brain, but it makes me very reluctant. That's so sweet. That's a nicer version of what I thought you were going <laughs> to Like, I have a different experience, which is that there is a certain type of writing that I just don't care for. I don't like it. I'm not interested in it. I know what it's going to be. It's predictable. So I'm just going to put a name on it, and then you can receive the hate mail instead of me this time. But, like, I don't love a Nicholas Sparks. That's just not my space. I don't like that sort of... I'm writing a story designed to make you cry. Overworked in a different genre. There's no surprise in it. Like on the third page, I know exactly what's going to happen in the entire book. On occasion, when I say on my social media spaces that I don't love Nicholas Sparks and in fact have not read any of his books or seen his movies, I mean, it's like a mutiny. I mean to tell you, it is absolute anarchy. Everybody goes bananas. And so not only did they try to like evangelize me for Nicholas Sparks, they're, they're mad at me for not liking another author's style. They're mad at me. You're like, how dare you? You're supposed to be supportive of other authors. I'm like, well, who made that rule that I have to love every book that was ever written because I'm a writer? But anyway, I'm just telling you right now, people are not happy with me when they find out I am not a fan of Nicholas Sparks. I find this really surprising because I think I don't know readers who read Nicholas Sparks novels because that's not my lane. Nothing wrong right. with Nicholas Sparks. But like I – might have lost a friend forever when I admitted at dinner once that I didn't like the notebook movie. I've never read the book. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my gosh. How dare you? But, but yet his books sell millions of copies. So I know that people must be reading them. Millions. Like his appeal is so vast. I get it. He has sort of read the room, romance, emotion, love. It's like a pretty easy formula to sort out like sentimentality, you know, he's got it. And so God love him. You know what? He does not give a care if Jen Hatmaker does not love his books. What does he care? He's sitting in his mansions. Good on you, Nicholas Sparks. You have found a formula that is wildly successful and I applaud you. One of the funniest things I've ever read on the internet, right after that McSweeney's piece about like, dear stranger, tell me how to take care of my baby. Do I let it play with tigers? How to know if you're in a Nicholas Sparks novel or maybe how to write a Nicholas Sparks novel. It's like, okay, take setting with sunsets. Mix in tragic heroine with sensitive boy with issues. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and it works every single time. I mean, really, like I, who, are, who am I to critique Nicholas Sparks? It's just not your thing. And it's good to know that you sound pretty self-aware about what your thing is. You're an Enneagram junkie. I mean, of course you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Jen, I want to hear about what else you don't like, but we actually have a way to talk about that here. Are you ready to get into specifics? I'm ready. Okay. Well, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one that's not for you and what you've been reading lately. And we'll talk about what you should read next. Okay. All right. Let's hear it. One book that I love, my people listening to this are going to just roll their eyes. They've heard it so <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite memoirs and one of my favorite writers. It's Kelly Corrigan and she wrote The Middle Place. Mm -hmm. I, I think a combination of factors, I identified so much with her story so I respect and admire her writing style. I absolutely love that book. I, I can reach for that book any moment at any time and reread it and love it just as much as the first time. So The Middle Place, one of my favorite memoirs so ever. that's not satire. It might make you cry, but not with mm -hmm. laughter. Uh, it's, very, it's very earnest. I know, and that's not normally my genre. I don't normally reach for Ernest. She's so gifted as a writer and as an observational human. 
what I find with Kelly's writing, and I've read all her books, she pinpoints like the exact human emotion that every one of us can identify with, then says it plainly, even when it's not flattering to who you are and how you feel. Like she really uncovers jealousy and she uncovers selfishness. Like all these things that we typically try to keep tucked away in a different way. This is what David Sedaris does. He also garishly exposes his own fears. And I think Kelly does this too in a way that is so human Mm -hmm. Anyway, she is just a phenomenal writer. The way that she wrote about her dad, and again, this goes back to a little bit of personal experience. My dad has a really similar personality to her dad, Greeny. So she lost Greeny a couple of years ago, but my dad is so similar and my family is so similar. So it just felt like she's telling my childhood, bigger than life dad. Anyhow, that is always, always going to be an easy recommendation for me at The Middle Place. I've seen that you've read her new one, right? I've read her new one and I love it. I think that did make me laugh and cry on the same page. I thought that that's was amazing. Yeah. Tell me more, right? That's what that was called. Yeah. Tell me more. Yes. She, that's just what her gift is. Like she can sort of take you through the landscape of several human emotions in a really short amount of time. I think by writing about her interior life with such honesty, uh, she sort of gives me as a reader of hers, a little bit of permission to tell, tell the truth in a little bit more stark way as a writer. Uh, because I come out of the Christian world where everything is supposed to look a certain way. It's just all so tidy. Even the pain stories end tidy. You know, they're just always wrapping it up with these neat edges and only really talk about interior struggle or whatever after you've fixed it, you know, after you're sorry, after you made amends. But one thing that I like about Kelly Corrigan's writing is that she just kind of tells it in the moment and it's not wrapped up in any way. You're just left with it. You're left going, oh, wow, you were deeply jealous of that person in that moment so much that you had to sit in your car and cry. I'm drawn to that. That kind of writing draws me in. That kind of person actually draws me in. So I find myself increasingly distanced from what feels like very varnished, veneer-type writing, where it all just has a bit of a sticky shellac to it. I don't know. I, I would prefer it to be a little bit more raw, a little bit more rocky, a little bit more unresolved, and she provides that for me. Okay. Now, thinking about different memoirs I've read, it seems to be like the message of the medium is it's not a story that's okay to share if it doesn't end well. And yet people reading Kelly Corgan's books probably probably aren't at their moment of triumph universally. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's so good. Okay. Now that makes me want to reread that immediately. Okay. What else do you love? One of my favorite food-centered books is called Blood, Bones, and Butter. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever read it. Gabrielle yes. Hamilton. Yes, I have. She's just a very gifted writer. I mean, she's she's a writer's writer. And I good writing is imperative to me. So I, especially in a memoir, it's not enough just to have a good story. You need to be able to tell it with um, with grace and and giftedness. And I think she's like that. And, you know, so she writes this fantastic book about sort of this three part journey for her through like childhood and then through early restaurant work, just this grit and grind of being in a New York restaurant, this third piece of being married with kids 
sort of in her husband's native Italy. And it's all very food centric. You know, it's really her journey through being a chef and a restaurant owner, and then ultimately a wife and a mother. And in some ways it won't please your sensibilities. There's turmoil in there and there's tension that's not very readily, uh, what am I trying to say, resolved. If you love food and she writes about food, like in just such spectacular fashion, if you're interested in the in the restaurant industry, if you love to hear about a chef who started, you know, learning about food over a spit in the ground with her unconventional parents when she was seven, and then all the way to this sort of journey to this Italy food scene. It's just, I just found it fascinating. And she's a good a writer as she is a chef and restaurant owner. Jen, do you like to cook the recipes from any of these books? Yeah, I do. I do that often. Or visit the restaurants. Yeah. I, that's another interesting thing about that sort of work and writing. It's accessible in some way to a reader beyond the pages of the book. So um, whether it is cooking their food or visiting the restaurants or following up in their spaces in any way, I actually love to do that. What else do you love? This would count positively for like a summer series. Uh-huh. I'm drawn to whimsy and humor a lot. There's a whole series. I know I was supposed to just pick a book, but there's a whole series, the Flavia Duluth series, and it's an, a writer named Alan Bradley. And I don't know, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but it's centered on his heroine is an 11-year-old girl from 1950s England. She, her mom is dead, and she's with her dad and sisters in this rambly old castle. They had a lot of family money, but it's mostly gone, and she's obsessed with chemistry and poisons. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous to say it, but in every book, she ends up essentially finding a dead body in some way or stumbling upon a murder, which fascinates her. She's got this like macabre mind um, that is both like charming and endearing and also sort of diabolical and amazing. The whole cast of characters that he just invented out of thin air. They're just so charming and funny. He just slides in all this hilarious dialogue that me and my sisters just text each other constantly. Uh, like Flavia vernacular is just a part of our shared <laughs> language now. This is not a heavy read. It is simply entertaining. I have the whole set. I'm trying to, I'm peeking over my bookshelf. I mean, it's got to be at least nine that he's written thus far. Um, in fact, one of my most like shameful moments is after I read the first two Flavia books in the series because uh, we're at the point now where we're all caught up. We're just waiting for the next one to come out every time. We've already pre-ordered it a year in advance. Alan Bradley started writing Flavia like at 70. Yeah. Like he's older. Or I wrote him an email and I was basically like, listen, I am so mad at you. I wish you would have started writing her in your 40s and we could have had 50 years of Flavia. I'm like, now you just need to get cracking because you're old and you need to write as many of these books as you possibly can. And if he just started 30 years ago, you could have read them all at the beach in the same week. And how great would that have been? Exactly. Yeah. Just binged. I basically told him, you're going to die and we're going to run out of Flavia books and I'm mad about it. So not surprisingly, he did not email me back. Well, I'm sure you know firsthand that writers you know, love to get letters like that. <laughs> I mean, it was just so kind. Did you send him like some supplements and red wine or coffee, whatever they think? Like, I absolutely should have. His, those books are just so delightful. Those are, those are absolutely to put on a summer list. I'm making notes because I have only read the first one. They just get better. 
their relationships just develop and they're, he, he never ages her much. I mean, I think I'm on the ninth or have whatever book it is. And she's maybe a year and a half older. We get to kind of keep her in her pre-adolescent. There's this piece of her character that's completely naive and innocent. And I love that. He weaves that in all the time, even as she's like solving murders, being this feisty little scrappy thing. What a wonderful character he invented. Well, I've only read the first, but I keep buying them. And I know you'll appreciate this. And it's because they're so stinking cute. His cover design, his title choices, the bright colors of all his books, really, really, really cute. Like he and his publishing team nailed that. All right. A book that's not for you, that's not Nicholas Sparks. Well, I just did not love it. I know everybody else loved it. Oprah loved it. The world loved it. But I really struggled through The Lovely Bones. I'm sure you read it. No, I've never read this because it sounds so dark and sad. That's what it is. I'm not always ready to go there. That for sure is not what I reach for. I don't reach for dark. I don't reach for sad. Life is stressful enough. I don't want to be stressed in the pages of my books. And so it's just the lovely bones when it hit, it was just everywhere and everybody was reading it and everybody was raving about it. And when I read, I mean, I had nightmares. I had the worst nightmares from that book. I can't believe I actually finished it. I felt like I was the only person who was like hard pass on the lovely bones. I don't think you're alone. Maybe not. I get it. And that's really helpful. Okay. What are you reading right now? Your list that you sent me was basically a list of like all the books I love in my life. You had just finished I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown, which just came out. Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which Laugh and Cry, same page. Um, This is How It Always Is. Have you read that? Lori Frankel? I love that book. That book is sad and hard. What did you think? You're right. It is sad and hard, which I just said I don't love, except it's hopeful too. Yeah. It ends in a really great place. It does. Like it makes you go, oh, thank you. Yes, you can do it. Family bonds are so dear and tender. And some of it is sad. And some of it is like, oh, this is, they did a really good job of this. And and it's complicated subject matter. I mean, I thought she did that with a very deft hand. Like she did a really lovely job weaving that story together. I just finished it. I'm behind on this. I know that I was late to the party, but I also just read Mudbound. Mm Mm-hmm. Amazing. I, I mean, even as I say the word, my brain is instantly, I, I painted a full picture in my head when I read that book. Mm-hmm. Everything, the house, the land, the people, I can just see it vividly. So books can go sad places. You don't want it to be relentless. Yeah, I think maybe that's it. And I also don't want it to be shameless. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to write this in such a way that I just want, it's like low hanging fruit for emotions. You're going to know this is great art because of how devastated I'm going to make you feel. Yeah. Yeah. And like almost in an obvious way too, like I don't mind a weepy cry in the middle of a book, but I prefer it when it kind of takes me by surprise, you know, where it is not this very obvious ploy just to pull us along to this, what is clearly going to be a sad ending. Somebody's going to die. And then, you know, it's the thing when a book shocks me a little bit with tragedy that I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I I have cried through Mm -hmm. more books than I could ever count. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not just that I, I think you can tell a story that has sad elements and still do it with a lot of respect for your reader, you know, where it's not just this trope to get a bunch of like middle-aged women to cry. (laughs) I remember finishing Snowflower and the Secret Fan on a plane. I was crying so hard that a lady like across the way from me finally just like 
she just gives me all her cocktail napkins. And she's like, I do not know what you are reading that has you like in such buckets of tears, but you at least need to wipe your nose. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, this book, it's gutting me. I just finished Tell Me More. You and I mentioned that earlier. Kelly Corrigan's latest book that's just very wise. I think I'm also drawn to her because we're parenting in the exact same stage right now. Mm-hmm. We both have teenagers. We're just plodding along at the same pace. And I appreciate her searing honesty in raising teenagers because there's just not a lot of that to go around. And then I also read, you said it was on your list. You probably read it too. It was Jodi Picoult's book, Small Great Things. It's her newest until this fall when she has a new one out. Well, I have read most of Jodi's books, but I took a breather for two or three years. When I read the description of Small Great Things, I knew I had to read it. And I'm so glad that I did. She's so, so some of my friends heard their criticism of Jody is something similar to my criticism of Nicholas Sparks. And I don't find it fair. I don't find her work one dimensional. I don't see her going for the obvious jugular, even though she often does. (laughs) I think she is one of the most gifted novelists when it comes to interpersonal dynamics and complicated characters. She does not let anything lie. I mean, she picks up every complicated topic, every controversy. And of course, this one is centered around racism and white supremacy. I mean, it is just, and somehow she manages to just dive right into the belly of the beast. And she writes her characters in such a way that you can, you don't sometimes know who you're pulling for. She makes them all so human. So it's not this very binary treatment of complicated issues. I just think she's a wonderful writer. And that was a really wonderful book. Did you like it? I did. And I really like how, I think she's kind of subversive. You're like, oh, I would never read a headline news piece about whatever. Like I hear that from a lot of readers, but she sucks you into the story. So you're dealing with these big issues on like a very small individual scale. That is exactly what it is. That was one of my favorites I've read of her, Small Great Things. Right. It's not reduced down to this very obvious sub story. It's, mm-hmm. She makes it very, very complicated like it is. She shows people who are complicated, why they are like they are. You know, she sort of forces you to consider somebody else's perspective, even if it's just wildly outside of your own ideology or sort of value base. And anyway, she's a, she's a really, really good novelist. I think she's really special. Well, that's a lot of fun. Jen, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? This happens every year for me. I primarily read when I travel. I travel for work. And that travel season, this chunk of fall and it's a chunk of spring, but it tends to go offline in the summer. It goes offline over all the holidays and in January. I find that um, because I do almost all my reading in airports and on planes and in hotel rooms, that when I'm not traveling, I'm not reading. It it has to be sort of reworked back into my daily rhythm. And I feel it right now because I've just realized the last book that I read was on my last trip that I took two weeks ago. Anyhow, that's just it. This is a very sad commentary, but what used to be nighttime reading for me when I would just crawl in bed with a book um, has become Netflix. Terrible, but true. I think that would have to be a swap over, like right there. That's really the only moment in my day where I could do it. When do you read? Well, first I want to support you in your venture to read more. That's fair. But I haven't gotten to watch Netflix in like a week because Will and I are watching a show together and we haven't been home at the same time in the evenings. And I've been reading instead, which is great, but also like come home. 
so we can watch more more Netflix. <laughs> I know, but it's a betrayal if you do. So, like, you cannot go an episode ahead when you're watching a show together. That's just that's just a deal breaker. Whole articles have been written about Netflix adultery yeah. and how it's bad for a marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Netflix adultery. So, so Netflix does not necessarily have to equal like the devil. Thank you for that. Usually, I read at night, and then I read when I'm waiting for things like the rhythms of life. Baseball season just started. Oh, right. I'm doing a lot oh. of reading. On, yeah, at the bleachers. <laughs> at practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're in the car. I've done a ton of audiobooks because I feel like I've done a ton of driving lately. Oh, yeah. So I'm behind on the, I mean, I record my own audiobooks and I still don't listen to audiobooks. Um, I think when I'm listening to something, I'm usually listening to a podcast. That is probably something else I could sort out. Uh, where I could be going about my day and listening to a book. I could probably add reading. Does that count for reading? It does, right? It 100% counts. Absolutely. The scientists say your brain is operating exactly the same. Okay. Let's talk about satire and mostly food memoir. Are you good with that? Yes. Okay. So I'm putting this one in first because I don't want to end there because I'm not as confident with it, but I really want to hear what you think. And it is Andrew Sean Greer's novel, Less. Do you know anything about this? I haven't read it. The story here is kind of fun. It won the Pulitzer where everybody was like, what just happened? Because it's funny. Funny books don't win prizes. Oh, interesting. Also, he started writing this as a very serious meditation about being gay and growing older and all the tensions therein. And he said he worked on it for a year and he just couldn't do it. And he said that like what he was writing was so sad to him was that he thought the only way like to, that he could really do it and that people would actually want to read it was if he made it snappy. So he turned oh. it into a funny story. The hero's name is Les. So there's lots of like puns and satirical references to the fact that his last name is Les. So he's handling serious issues like he's, he's just had a breakup and people are getting married and he feels really bad about the insulting situations. I think he has some kind of reunion, but it's handled with such a light. It's just funny. It's a satiric take on really serious events. So, and I did this on audio, which can be kind of a different, you know, experience. Did he read it? No, that's pretty unusual for fiction writers too, but some do like some of my favorite audiobooks are by Jocelyn Jackson, a Southern writer. Mm-hmm. I enjoy Southern writing so much. Oh, man. I want to get to the food memoirs, but I might have another one for you then. Give it to me. All right. I'm thinking about Rush by Lisa Patton. It's not out yet. It comes out the end of August. Lisa went to the University of Alabama. Southern girl had an experience going back to her college, her sorority house, where an African-American woman mopping the marble halls, ends Uh up telling her the story about how her friend, who also worked in the dorm, serving these 300, the first line is something like, I work for 300 white girls. And you're like, Uh what? Oh, like none of whom is older than 22. So you start reading it and you're like, what is, what's going on here? This woman tells Lisa the story about how these women are all contract employees. Nobody has health insurance. They're all paid $8 an hour, which is not factually accurate, but I'm just saying not enough. And it, she was just so struck by the irony that her this woman's colleague did not get cancer treatment because she had no health insurance while she's mopping marble halls. So it's about the gross injustice and the SEC. The story's told in three different voices. So, but what she's done is kind of like um, Jody Pakul. Not like I think they read similarly exactly because they're mm-hmm. writing in kind of different genres. Because this is definitely like women's fiction that Lisa's mm-hmm. writing. You're taking like this big issue that feels so impersonal, and you like drop it down into three individual people's lives. Okay, I'm literally pulling these up as you're telling me. Do you have 
any David Lebovitz in your life. I feel like he's the foodie version of David Sedaris. So he has a food blog. He got his start working in restaurants. He worked at- uh, Oh, he wrote My Paris Kitchen. Yeah. Yes, I have read him. Do you like his stuff? I think you could go down a really fun rabbit trail. Love, love. Like also set a food memoir in like some iconic city like Paris and I, that's it. Just take all my money. Well, put your money towards his book, The Sweet Life in Paris. To me, this is like if David Sedaris had pretty pictures and recipes to correspond with his essays, that's what you have. Like he just tells the funniest stories about moving to Paris. I really hope I'm not muddling these two authors because their lives are so similar in some ways, but moving to Paris with his boyfriend, being like totally out of water with navigating the terrain and finding out how to mail a letter or like get your electric meter fixed. Or, oh, I just remember like dying in a dentist waiting room because I was reading his article about um, women sunbathing nude in public in Paris. Like it's just so, so funny. So I love that one. That's probably my favorite. But his newest one, La Part, is also really, really funny. So it's the story of how he like really settled in and decided like, yes, Paris is my home. Of course, like all these obstacles get thrown in his way because otherwise you don't have anything to write a book about. These are fabulous, fabulous recommendations. Do you read Smitten Kitchen, Deb Perlman? Yeah. She's so funny and her recipes work. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel about um, even like Christy Teigen. I just bought her cookbook. You know, she's so spicy. Her mouth is so saucy. Anybody who can take a subject that I love and make it funny, like food, I'm just thrilled about it. So she's actually a really funny, funny communicator and all of her recipes work. I've made a dozen of them. Every one of them. Delicious. Okay. I feel like a jerk, but I'm a little surprised. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful, but I mostly know her from Twitter and I don't know her food self. I will check it out because I love a big glossy cookbook. It's a beautiful cookbook. And you know, she's, her background is Thai. Her mom is, is from Thailand and lives with them. It's very Thai related, not entirely, but you see all that, you see that influence a lot in her food is absolutely decadent. It's delicious. I've not made a single bad thing out of her cookbook yet. All right. You're talking about funny. So I'm thinking cancer. Um, (laughs) Obviously. So there's a food memoir that has a setup that you couldn't have like crafted a better one. Were you like inventing this to write a novel out of thin air? It's by Grant Ackett, who's the chef at Alinea in Chicago. It's called Life on the Line. And it wasn't until years after I read this book and I recommended it to a friend's husband and he read it and reported back that I realized that's a play on words. So Life on the Line, a chef's story of chasing greatness, facing death, and redefining the way we eat. Do you know anything about Alinea? Mm-mm. Okay. So this is a restaurant on the north side of Chicago is on Halstead, I think, in Lincoln Park. He's one of the chefs who like will bring you for dessert a balloon filled with helium that's made of strawberry puree and it's filled with whipped cream. And it, or you'll have delivered to your table a platter with smoking coals on it and then they'll set a dish of water on and you'll have to waft something and the Gosh. server will have some herbs in your... He likes to make foams and things are in weird textures so you'll get like... He, he does some inventive stuff. Okay. Okay. I'm so out of my depth here. But like all the Michelin stars that are really important, he's he's one of the top ones in America. Okay. He started at the French... Well, he started at like his dad's diner in Michigan, but then he worked mm. at the French Laundry with Thomas Keller, someplace I have never been, to be clear. Then he goes to Chicago to open his own restaurant eventually. Then he gets tongue cancer, but he doesn't know it's tongue cancer. So he like puts it off for a long time. Like, I'm not that sick. I'm not that sick. I'm not that sick. And then his business partner drags him to the doctor and he finds out he has tongue cancer. So you have the chef 
wife who's really sick because this cancer has gone untreated and it was aggressive and he's waited a really long time. He might die, but also immediately he loses his ability to taste, like everything's distorted. He loses his taste buds. He's in danger of having his tongue cut out and not be able to not only speak, but not eat the way that he eats now. And he's a chef who insists on tasting every dish that goes out of his kitchen. So what do you do with that? This story has a lot of like background info on how Alinea came to be. Ooh, also a very tense environment, you know, fiction, friction. You got that in spades. This is the story of how he came through personally and also like how the restaurant kept going when their chef couldn't taste anything. Interesting. Fun peek behind the scenes of how a restaurant works. Lots of personal drama, lots of foodie references. And if you wanted to rabbit trail this, the food writer Michael Ruhlman has written about Ackett's in a couple of his books. Like he has this really okay. fun trilogy that starts with the making of a chef that you might enjoy for that like nerdy behind the scenes. How does the business really work kind of thing? There are three books in that series, but like anything that talks about the French laundry often talks about Ackett's because he was the sous chef there for ages. Love it. What do you think you'll read next? I think I might be in the mood for less. I think that might be my first one. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thanks for having me on. Readers, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Jen clearly could use some more books in her life. I mean, couldn't we all? So make sure to visit the comment section and share a title you think Jen would enjoy. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 135. Head to that page to check out the full list of titles we talked about today and leave your recommendations. That's whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 135. That's 135. And readers, make sure to connect with Jen online. Visit her blog at jenhatmaker.com and find her on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jen Hatmaker. Her latest best-selling book of Mess and Moxie is available wherever books are sold. And Jen hosts her own much-loved podcast, the For the Love Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Readers, next week I'll be taking a little vacation from your podcast feed. So you don't have to go without your book fix. We'll share popular and perfectly timed episodes for catching up on in our free weekly newsletter. Make sure you're subscribed at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, regularly scheduled programming will continue the very next Tuesday, June 19th. We have so many great episodes coming your way this summer. I cannot wait to share them with you. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or another favorite podcast app like Podcast Addict or Overcast so you don't miss a beat or a book. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton 
the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.